Thank you so much. Um, if you'd like to, do please keep your Bibles open at page 552 as we come to that uh, this morning. Uh, now, just a quick poll. Uh, how many of you speak more than one language? Just raise your hands. Okay, no boasting. Great. Fantastic. Good. Um, how many of you would like to speak more than one language? Yeah, okay, few more. Great. Um, I'm going to argue this morning that every single one of us should be bilingual. Uh, so see if you agree. I want to show you this morning how deep and beautiful this psalm is and why C.S. Lewis describes it as the finest poem ever written. And in my view, it will help us make sense of those big moments of transcendence in our lives, those moments of mystery and wonder, when the world and the universe feel very big and we feel very small. Uh, we'll also see that God has spoken powerfully and deeply. God is a communicator. God wants us to know him. And we're going to understand the logical, personal end point of living in a world that resounds uh, to the voice of God, our creator. If you have a look at the psalm, you'll see that it splits very clearly and neatly into three sections. You've got verses 1 to 6, where we're told that God speaks to us through creation itself. And David, the psalmist, uses uh, the word El to describe God there, that sense of God being uh, unfathomable, uh, existing for all ages. And then in verses 7 to 11, you've got God speaking to us specifically and directly through his word. And there it switches so that the Hebrew word for God there is Yahweh, uh, the God who's active, intervening uh, in history. And then the last three verses is a prayer of uh, commitment and response uh, to what's been said. So we look at verses uh, 1 to 6. What is it that the heavens and the skies proclaim about the glory of God. As with Psalm 8 that we looked at last week, we know instinctively that this is talking about what you might describe as a big sky experience. And dominance amongst the things that happen when we have those experiences are first a sense of scale, a sense of, of the vastness of the universe or the vastness of the world or, or the landscape or the horizon and, and, and small little me. And that's a really important experience uh, that we should have regularly. But the second is one of beauty, uh, where we are amazed by the beauty of all that God has made. And uh, what we need to imagine is that, that, that that's a bit like, say you're, you're walking back home today and uh, you come round a corner, and there is um, the statue of David uh, by uh, Michelangelo. And it's just, it's just there on the side of the street. And you'd probably stop and have a look at it and sort of look at it from each side and think, well, how did that get here and, and what's going on? And if you had a conversation with someone who was also in the street and that person said, you know, I, I just think this just appeared. It, it, it just suddenly was there that nobody made it, nobody gave any thought uh, to its form, it just simply is. And you could have a really interesting conversation with that person about, well, 
it, it looks to me like someone's made that. Look at the graceful lines on it. Look at the, look at the thought. Look at the beauty. And you could have a really interesting discussion about whether this beautiful sculpture is something that was made that sh shows signs of an intelligent and an orderly and a beautiful mind or whether it simply exists and there's no more uh, to say about it. There is also a sense of when we are wowed by creation, there, there is a sense of extravagance on God's part, that we are amazed just by the sheer volume and beauty and complexity and general extravagance of all that he's made. Uh, one commentator explains like this. It's a bit like um, somebody playing the organ with all of the stops pulled out. You know, just more trumpet, you know, more trombone, more strings, uh, more this. And, and that's that sense we have when we see uh, the glory of the world. And Paul picks this up in Romans 1.20, where he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. There's not even a hint here of our role in creation as stewards or caretakers. That was much more the theme of what we we're looking at in Psalm 8 last week. We are first and foremost, we are wanderers, or a better English word, we are, we are gawpers. We are people who just gawp in wonder at what God has made. Now, in verses 2 and 3, there is what seems to be initially a contradiction. Uh, so in verse 2, uh, we read, Day after day, the heavens pour forth speech. And then in verse 3, they have no speech. Well, which is it? Do they pour forth speech or is there no speech? Uh, what seems to be going on here is a very poetic way of describing our experiences. Uh, what creation shouts about its creator is as real as speech, as the speech that I'm using now. Uh, but we should think of God as an artist or a sculptor, someone who communicates very clearly and very powerfully, but not with wordy words. So that's the, the picture there. So th they communicate as powerfully as that beautiful statue, uh, but they don't do it with words. And then in verses 4 to 6, of Psalm 19, we have this deeply poetic, not very scientific uh, description of uh, what is going on, and we still use that basic imagery of the sun rising and the sun setting, as do many secular poets and songwriters, even though we know that it is the earth revolving on its own axis as it goes around the sun, and it's not that the sun that, that does the moving, but it's us that does the moving. This is poetry here. The impact of this grand opening is to tell us that there is huge merit in learning the language of creation. And it may be a language that is new to us, or we haven't really ever tuned into or listened to before. Learning what creation tells us of God. It, it will be like learning a new language. Now, some of you excel at that. Others of us find it a, a rather a trying thing. But it is a vital avenue of worship. We feed our souls and our minds, getting out into creation, learning wonder and joy. 
Sir Francis Bacon, who is considered to be one of the most eminent English scientific minds in the late 16th, early 17th century, wrote this. I just love this. He said, God has provided us with two books. Not one, but two. The first is nature. The second is the Bible. And we should apply ourselves to both. And this helps us talk imaginatively with people who aren't Christians. It's only one in a million who would claim that a dazzling sunset or a night sky aren't glorious. So almost everybody is with us at using the word glorious. For those of us who are Christians, these experiences arouse our wonder and our worship. We see the hand of a generous creator. And so we can discuss this with other people who share these experiences and challenge those who haven't given space to consider how this extravagant beauty arose. At times, then, it will be right to say, are you telling me that you believe that all this beauty and order and extravagance are all here entirely by chance? That they don't bear the fingerprints of a creator, that they don't speak of a creator's power and love. We as Christians see beauty and wonder. We see them as signposts to a greater glory and mind. And we understand our quest for beauty to really be the quest for the source of beauty, God himself. Now, the super smart link between the first and the second section of Psalm 19 is the sun. Uh, the psalmist describes things as nothing is deprived of the sun's warmth. Having reflected on the glory of God in creation, the psalmist uh, singles out the Middle Eastern sun as enjoying pride of place in the way that God has ordered the world. Now, we now... Uh, many, many centuries later, know and appreciate even more fully the impact, the importance of the sun on biology and chemistry and geography and agriculture, even on our own well-being. The sun permeates and reaches everything, warming and cleansing and giving life. Seamlessly, the psalmist moves us in verse 7 to the second and decisive way that God speaks to us through his word. Now again, this is a great point to consider if you're someone who, who does have a sense of God's glory. You know, you've, you've stood out on a hill as the sun has set and you've just gone, oh my goodness, this is amazing, this is beautiful, this suggests to me that there is more in the world. Well, this is a great point for you to consider if you don't know where to go next. In Psalm 19, the logical step, having looked at the way creation shouts to us about the glory of God, is then to say, well, God, I want to know more. I want you to speak to me. I want you to tell me more about who you are. We believe as Christians that the God who so powerfully shouts in creation also speaks even more fully through his incarnate word, Jesus word in the Bible. And so the second section is all about God's word. And like the sun, the psalmist says that God's word reaches in to illuminate and to reveal and to warm and to purify. Listen to the verbs. It refreshes, it makes wise, it gives light. Listen to the adjectives, perfect, trustworthy, radiant, precious, sweet, it is our treasure, it is our delight. 
God's word in the Bible doesn't replace creation or supplant it, but God reveals wonderful, life-giving truth through his written word. And therefore, God's word written down is still the greatest gift that we can give to those cultures that still don't have it. And for many years, we've had a wonderful link with Wycliffe Bible translators through Elizabeth and through others as well. And we just remember that that work is still ongoing. Everybody has creation, but not yet everybody has God's written word in which he speaks so beautifully. And as Chris reminded us in the Talking Jesus report, uh, people in our culture will still go to the Bible uh, to find out more about God. I mean, it's a, it's a bit upsetting that Google triumphs the Bible, but you know, we will live uh, with that. And of course, there are wonderful Christians who are making it their business to be present uh, on the internet, uh, providing answers and questions and testimony that tell uh, seekers after faith uh, some wonderful things. Now, the psalm could have ended there, couldn't it? It could have ended with God speaks through creation, God speaks through his word, hallelujah, amen. Uh, But uh, it goes uh, deeper uh, than that. Of course, it celebrates that God speaks with such passion and precision through the silent music of creation and then supremely in the Bible. But if we are to become fully bilingual, if we are to speak both languages following Sir Francis Bacon and applying ourselves diligently to the books of both nature and the Bible, we have to move from being spectators to being followers. And as we do so, we part company with Edith, who of course famously sang Je ne regret rien, and we say goodbye to Frank, who sang Regrets, I had a few, but then again, too few to mention. And we even take our leave of St. Robbie, who sang No Regrets, They Don't Work, No Regrets, They Only Hurt. The third and final section of the psalm is personal. It's responsive. No more big skies and glorious sunset. Now it's what I do when I take the time to pick out or tune in to God's voice in the crowded airwaves of our culture. And the psalmist tells us two things. Firstly, there are still things that I, and dare I say you, have not heard from God. God longs to warn me. He longs to keep me from harming myself and others. God longs to spur me and you onto sacrificial service. But we have gaps in what we hear. There is deep seated self-centeredness that drowns out God's voice. The psalmist describes these as their hidden faults. Now this is only solved through careful and attentive listening to God. But apart from that, there are still things that I have heard clearly from God, but I've chosen to ignore. The problem isn't hearing from God. The problem is trusting that God wants my best and wants to work through me and in me. And the psalmist describes these as their willful sins, those things that they keep on doing regardless of what God says. Those of us who wonder at the extravagance of God's creation, those of us who listen carefully to his words, are not uncomfortable with this talk of hidden faults and facing up to willful sins. We welcome it 
because it comes from the king of creation and communication. Now, some of you will recognize the last verse of Psalm 19. Uh, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Some of you will recognize those as the great preacher's prayer. And a very noble prayer it is too. But friends, sisters and brothers, we need to rescue this prayer from the clutches of the preachers. This is not a prayer to sanctify 20 minutes worth of sermonizing. It is the prayer to consecrate our whole lives before God, to God. Since the psalmist knows so much about God through creation, through his word, since the psalmist experiences in worship the cleansing and empowering of God, They can now pray for God's truth to be be reflected in their own words and in the thoughts that lie behind them. In 14 verses, that's amazing, we have gone from a glorious sunset and night sky, a spectacle in which God speaks with clarity and with abundance. We've gone from that to praying that our words, our words of worship and friendship of seeking justice, of giving care, of serving, that our words echo the good purposes and the powerful voice of our Creator. That's what we're called to do. We listen and we repeat. Amen.